0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you would, turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I, uh, I heard a story this past week of a guy named Danny whose uh, mother had come to visit him at college and uh, it turns out that Danny just had just moved in with this girl named Allison and he was trying frantically to explain himself. He said, Mom, don't get stressed out. This is platonic. Uh, it's just an arrangement for rent. We live in separate rooms. It's just cheaper this way. Uh, but his mom thought, <laughs> there's no way. Uh, but Danny was trying to reassure her. No, 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 they're just friends trying to save money. So Danny's mom came over for dinner to eat with them one night. And uh, as they were eating dinner, uh, his mom looked at Allison and said, hey, Allison, I love that watch. I, want, I, I really wanted one just like it. Can I see yours? And so Allison handed her the watch, and they go on with dinner. Well, a couple of days go by, and Allison comes to Danny. She says, you know, Danny, I'm missing my watch. And the last time I remember having it was when uh, your mom was looking at it. Now, obviously, I wouldn't think she'd steal it, but can you see if maybe she just forgot to give it back to me, dropped it in her purse or something? And uh, so Danny sent his mom an email the next day that said, dear mom, obviously I'm not saying that you took the watch. But the fact remains that the watch is missing, and you were the last one who had it. A couple days later, his mom sent an email back to him that said, Dear Danny, obviously I'm not saying that you're sleeping with Allison. But the fact remains that had she been sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the watch on her pillow right where I left it. (laughs) There are a lot of people who are hiding. There are a lot of people who are hiding. And Psalm 51 is a psalm that is designed to help us come out of hiding. It's there to help us confess our sins, to find forgiveness, and to walk in the light again. Not to do so is hazardous. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. J.D. Greer, reflecting on this, said this. He said, everybody sins. It's what you do when you're confronted with your sin that makes the difference between life and death. So Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance after being confronted with his sin of adultery and murder. The story, this text, is a perfect passage for us to meditate on as we prepare to come To the Lord's table. So let's do that. Here's what we're going to consider today. We're going to look at the basis of forgiveness, the precondition for forgiveness, and the results of forgiveness. The basis of forgiveness, the precondition for forgiveness, and the results of forgiveness. First, the basis of forgiveness. What is the basis of David's plea? Where is his hope? Look at verse 1 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion. The basis of this forgiveness is the mercy of God, which springs from the love and the compassion of God. So David is throwing himself completely, 100%, on the mercy, the love, and the compassion of God alone and nothing else. Now think for a minute about what David could have said at this juncture of his life and career. How could he have conditioned his plea based on all that he had lived through At this juncture in his life and his career, notice that David doesn't base his plea for forgiveness on his past righteousness. Could you imagine him saying, Hey, God, on the whole, I've been a really great king. Remember that whole thing with Goliath? That was me. I've got a little capital in the bank, don't you think? Could have predicated his plea for forgiveness on his past record. How many of us have done that? Hey, God, can't you cut me a little bit of slack? Look at all the stuff that I've done over here, it's been really good. So you can you just take it easy on me here? David also doesn't try to rationalize it make it seem like on the scale of things his sin's not that bad. He doesn't say, hey God, do you have any idea how hard it is to be a king? How stressful it is? Am I not allowed a little bit of slack given those conditions? How many of us temper the seriousness of our sin like that? God, do you have any idea how difficult my life is right now? It's so hard. It's so stressful. I'm filled with anxiety. You gotta cut me a bit of slack here. He doesn't do that. David doesn't try to bargain with God by making a bunch of promises about the future. It's it's like you're asking God for forgiveness on credit. God, I need you to let me off on this one. I need you to let me off on this one, and in return, I promise, I'll make it up to you in the future. I'll be the best spouse. I'll be the best follower of yours ever. He doesn't do any of that. All of David's hope is in the mercy of God. He says, My only hope is God's mercy plus nothing. My only hope is God's unfailing love plus nothing. See, here's the good news about our merciful God those who place their hope in God's mercy plus nothing will never be turned away. You will never be turned away. If you come to God and you make the basis of your plea, God's mercy plus nothing, you'll never be turned away. The repeated theme of the Bible is clear. The only people who are turned away are those who hold on to some reason God is obligated to be merciful to them. Those are the only people God turns away. The basis for forgiveness is God's mercy, his unfailing love, his compassion, plus nothing. Second, the precondition. For forgiveness. Now, David does more than make a plea on the basis of God's mercy. There's more to recovering from sin than that. There's a precondition to forgiveness. I'm going to call this precondition making a good confession. Okay? Forgiveness requires a good confession on our part. What is a good confession? I see three components to it in the chapter here. The first is this. The first is saying, I did it. That's the first part of making a good confession. I did it. Look at verse 3. David says, for I know, I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. I did it. I did it. Let me give you the backstory to this psalm. 2 Samuel 12. After David's adulterous and murderous transgressions, God sends Nathan, Israel's pastor, to David. And Nathan tells David a parable. There were two men, one rich, one poor, living in a small rural town. The rich man had a massive herd of cattle and sheep, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb. And this poor man raised this little sheep, feeding her, nurturing her, even letting this sheep sleep in his lap. One day, an out-of-town traveler came through looking for room and board, and instead instead of offering one of his own animals for the stranger, the rich man stole the lamb from his poor neighbor, the only lamb he had, and he fed that lamb to the traveler. And after hearing this, here's how David reacted. He burned with anger against the man and said, "...as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die." He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan replied, you are the man. You're the man. And at the end of Nathan's rebuke, you know what David says? He doesn't try to excuse himself. He doesn't try to rationalize it away. He doesn't try to condition it. Oh, it was just a bad time for me. No, this is what he said. He said, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. A good confession involves saying, I did it. I did it. I sinned. Not, I made a mistake. Not, oh, I didn't intend to do that. Not, oh, my emotions got the better of me. No. I did it. I sinned. Second, I offended God. I offended God. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only have I I sinned and done evil in your sight. Now, we read that, we might think David is clueless. How can he say that? He's committed adultery and murder, but his sin is against God only. Part of our outrage over David's statement is due to the cultural exhaust that we breathe every day. The cultural exhaust we breathe every day is this. It's not sin if it's not hurting some other human being. Oftentimes, I get this in the context of dating couples, engaged couples who are intimate with one another before they're married. They'll they'll respond to me. They'll say, well, what does it matter who I have sex with? As long as it's not hurting anyone. We're consenting adults. What does it matter? Sin is measured exclusively on whether or not the action harms another human being. Here's the question. Where does God figure into that? Does he get a voice? Or is he just a heavenly robot without feeling in regards to our choices? There's an entire book of the Bible, which we will look at, in which God attempts to get across to us how our sin affects him, what it's like for him as a feeling God when we sin. It's the book of Hosea. Hosea is Israel's pastor. God commands him to marry a prostitute and remain faithful to her in spite of her daily infidelity to him. And God says, this is how your sin affects me. You're the prostitute. I'm the faithful husband. God's words are not meant to diminish the damage done to Bathsheba, Uriah, or Israel. They are meant to heighten the damage that sin does to God. I've said this before here, and I'll keep saying it. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is cosmic treason. No matter how big or little we think the sin is, sin, every sin, all sin is cosmic treason. If you try to overthrow your own country through some sort of military treasonous campaign, You might harm or kill individuals in the process, but you won't be tried for murder. You won't be tried for, you'll be tried for treason because you betrayed the entire country that, that has nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It is overthrowing the rule of God to whom you owe everything. Think about an example of this. Think about jealousy. What is jealousy? Jealousy is I don't like what God has given to me, And I wish he had given to me what he gave to you. So you look at someone else's car or girlfriend, job, looks, talents, and you say, I wish I had that. Well, in that moment, you're saying, God, I don't trust what you gave to me, and I'm not satisfied with you or your plan for my life. Now, this little sin of jealousy may exist only in your mind. It may not come out and truly hurt another human being. But do you hear in it the attitude towards God? It's cosmic treason. So a good confession involves us owning up to our sin. I did it. I sinned. It involves us acknowledging we have offended God. It's cosmic treason. And third, it involves us saying, I'm like that. I li- I'm like that. Verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Committing acts of sin is not an aberration, folks. (laughs) Committing acts of sin is not a hiccup. David is not saying, oh, you know, I'm normally not like this. He's saying, sinning comes naturally to me. I came out of the womb an expert at it. My behavior was not an exception. I was born like this. This is why, by the way, you never have to teach children how to be disrespectful. Never. You never have to model how to be disrespectful. You never have to model for them how to complain. We are not born good. G.K. Chesterton was a devout Christian and one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. The Times, which at that point in time, was the most widely circulated newspaper in the English language in the world. Uh, The Times asked several eminent writers to write on a topic. The topic was, what's wrong with the world? That was the topic. Chesterton's contribution in answer to the question took the form of a letter. He wrote, dear sirs, I am Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton understood the instinct of all the other writers, and it's an instinct that we have, and that instinct is this, what's wrong with the world is out there. What's wrong with the world is what the politicians are doing or not doing it's what that group of people are doing or not doing it's what that individual is doing or not doing the problem with the world is out there and chesterton is saying that mindset shows an amazing lack of self-knowledge the problem with your world the problem with our world is fundamentally the same problem we all share i am the problem you are the problem so for most people who who read the times That was very counterintuitive because the readership would have thought, no, 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 It's somebody out there who needs to be blamed. It's not me. Chesterton is trying to get people to turn around and see this thing from a different angle. See, for most of us, from childhood onward, the last thing we're taught to do is to put our hand up and say, I have sinned, I am responsible, I am guilty, I am like this. That's the last thing we're taught. But a good confession requires it. A good confession requires us to say, I am like this. Now, I know someone's going to think, Pastor, this is such a bummer. Why are you talking like this? Why all the emphasis on sinfulness? The book of Psalms is present in the Bible, not so that we will observe them from a distance, but so that we'll take them upon our own lips and make them our very prayers. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. It shows us the path to forgiveness. It's there to help us come out of hiding. It's there to help us confess our sins, to find forgiveness. And remember, not to do so is hazardous. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Think about David's story. He seduced another man's wife. He got her pregnant. Then to cover his tracks, he had her husband killed. And he recovered. David recovered from this catastrophic sin. If David can recover from that, don't you think there's hope for you? To recover from whatever sin you're hanging on to today? Now David wrote this psalm after his sin and then he handed it to his choir director and he said, put this to music. He wanted you to sing it. He wanted you to memorize it. He wanted this psalm to be part of your life. This is the journey to recovery. It can be yours as well. Third, the results of forgiveness. There are two First is joy. God isn't satisfied with you feeling just a sense of relief over having been forgiven. He's not satisfied with just simply assuaging your guilt. God goes big. He swings for the fences. He wants you joy-filled, not just relieved. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. An interesting way of putting it. It's as if David is saying, I don't want to just know joy and gladness conceptually. I, I want to know joy and gladness such that it's been imprinted on my senses. It's that real to me. And he says, Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice he doesn't say, Restore to me your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now look, the path to joy requires we experience grief over sin. It's there in verse eight. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. In other words, there's a sense in which the bones have to be crushed. They have to feel as though they're crushed in order for there to be joy. In our typical daily routines, we go about our day and then we repeat, we do it all over again. We don't typically typically rejoice in our wellness from day to day, do we? The fact that we're physically healthy isn't a source of conscious joy. When does our physical health become a source of conscious joy? Right after you've been sick. Yeah? Think about the last time you had stomach flu. Hmm? Lovely, right? The moment you realize you can keep down something, what was that moment like? Oh, yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. Wonderful. Because it's then we most acutely feel our wellness when we're coming out of it. Listen, we have to feel our sickness if we're ever going to learn to rejoice in our wellness. We have to feel our sickness if we're ever going to rejoice in our wellness. This is what led Thomas Watson in his book on repentance to say, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter. Christ will not be sweet. Sin's bitterness is precisely what sets the stage for Christ's sweetness. Now, there's another level, I think, at which joy is working here. God wants to restore to us joy. He wants us to hear joy and gladness. He wants joy to be imprinted on our senses. But there's another level at which joy is working here, and that is it's a preventative power to avoid future sin. Notice in David's confession, he makes no mention of his sexual immorality. No mention of it. What if David is actually driving deeper and getting to the root of his sexual sin? In the ministry leadership training course I teach here called Multiply, we talk about surface idols and deep idols. All sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. And every sin contains a surface idol and a deep idol. So, for example, cheating on income taxes is the surface idol. But there's a deep idol that is its sustenance, that is its fuel, its root. There are four primary deep idols, power, approval, comfort, control. So the extra money acquired from cheating on income taxes provides the individual with added security or control or the illusion of it. The deep idol is control. The surface idol is cheating on income taxes. David's surface idol is sexual immorality. He doesn't mention it. But what's his deep idol? I would contend he's trying to address the deep idol of comfort because joy is a theme and specifically his lack of it. What drove him to lust after Bathsheba and sleep with her was driven by his lack of joy in God, his lack of joy in all that God had done for him, his lack of joy in all that God had promised he would do for him in the future. He was restless because he was not contented in all that God had done for him. He was joyless because he could not find joy in all that God had done for him. He's addressing the deep idol of comfort. He is trying to plunge joy deep into his heart because he knows that if that's there, if that's there, he becomes immune to a number of different kinds of surface idols or sins. See, God doesn't just want us to be relieved, but joy-filled at being forgiven. And joy is a preventative power that protects us from future sin. It's a lack of it that drives us into the arms of other gods. Now, there's a second result. That's mission re-engagement. Look at verse 13. Then I would teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. So David is saying, God, if you're forgiving me fully, if you're cleansing me thoroughly, if you're purging my sin completely, then I want to tell everybody about this. This is not mission re-engagement generically. This is mission re-engagement specifically, specifically having to do with forgiveness, confession of sin and finding forgiveness. David is saying, God, if you're doing all this for me, if you're forgiving me fully, you're cleansing me thoroughly, if you're purging my sin completely, then I want to tell everybody about it because this is extraordinary news. One of the results of forgiveness is that you shout from the rooftops that this privilege, this blessing is available. And let me tell you something, this message of full and free forgiveness through Jesus Christ is one of the most needed messages in our world today. Five years ago, the New York Times reported something unusual that happened in Manhattan. Two women, Laura and Sandra, dressed in white Beckoned people to unburden their souls. Laura would silently flag the attention of someone passing by and point them to words which had been stenciled on the glass. It said, Air your dirty laundry, 100% confidential, anonymous, free. And then she would extend a clipboard with a blank sheet of paper and an envelope stamped with the word secret to any takers. Hundreds. Hundreds took that clipboard. Executives, street people, couriers, secretaries, shoppers, joggers, all would pause to write down their sins and secrets, seal it in the envelope, and then hand it to Laura. Meanwhile, Sandra would quietly paint the portraits of of those who stopped to divulge their inner secrets. Once the person was well out of sight, the envelope was opened, the message taped to the glass for all to see. The portraits of the individuals posted as well. Those who came by read the confessions of the strangers before adding their own. Some of them were silly. Some of them were terrible. The hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute, said one. I want to see SUVs explode. Those people are so selfish, wrote another. As the day progressed, the once empty glass storefront was papered like a wall of guilt. I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt. I'm 25 and he's a millionaire. Or another that simply says, I have AIDS. This little storefront experiment revealed a lot of things. But the inescapable fact that surfaced across every generation, every income level, every social standing was that a lot of people are hiding. They're hiding from police, they're hiding from parents, they're hiding from coaches, teachers. Some are hiding things from bosses, others are hiding things from spouses and nearly all of them are hiding from God and a lot of people are searching for a way to deal with what they're hiding and maybe that's you you're hiding from God you haven't made a good confession you're hiding that private addiction you're hiding bitterness against some other person You're hiding disappointment with how God has orchestrated the events of your life. Full forgiveness, thorough cleansing, complete purging of sin is good news that many of you need to hear. You need to hear it. Now, I recognize that making a good confession is a risk to take to come out into the open and say, I did it, I sinned, I've offended God, I am like this, is a risk that many of you are not willing to take. Let me tell you what makes it safe to come out of hiding. The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because all your sin, past, present, future, has fallen on him. All of it. His work on the cross for you is what makes it safe for you to come out into the light and admit it all. And you know what? Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross are beckoning you to do so. They're beckoning you to do so. This is one of the unique things that Christianity has to offer. No place else will you find this. Because everywhere else, you're going to be left to work it off. The cross of Christ stands in all its ugliness and glory and says to us, come to me, come to me. I have taken it all for you. Let's bow our heads. I wanna read a portion of Psalm 51. And as I do, if God has pricked your conscience that there is sin you've been hanging on to, that he wants you to confess, do so. In your mind, in your heart, between you and God, pray this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, you've told us that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, give us the faith, that trust, that when that happens, it actually happens. It's a reality. If there's stuff here, God, that we're hanging on to, that we're hiding, may we come to you, confess it. You invite us to do so. You invite us to lay our stuff at the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus in our place has been condemned for it. God, I pray that that would just be fuel on the fire of our worship. All that Jesus has done, to take my stuff. May that result in my mouth, my life, my mind being a song of praise to him. We want to do that now in the moments we have. In Christ's name, amen.